Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's a blue one in front of you. We're going to be on page 781 of it. So go ahead and turn there. If you don't own a Bible, uh, we want to make that right today. We want to give you one uh, so that you understand that what we say around here, what we proclaim around here, what we believe around here isn't our thoughts or our ideas. It all comes from the Word of God. Uh, we believe that book will change your life. And so on your way out, if you leave this exit over here to the connector, room, there's a stack of Bibles there. We want you to have one of those when you go. But we're going to be in Acts 28 this morning. After six months, actually six and a half months, we're closing out the book of Acts today. Uh, I don't know if you're excited about that or sad about that or indifferent about that, but uh, you're one of the three. So um, we're going we're gonna to finish that out, and then before today's over, we're going to tell you where we're headed next. So we're excited there. But join me in a word of prayer before we jump into Acts 28. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for what you've already done today. God, we're thankful for the witness of baptism, for the power of changed lives in Jesus Christ. And God, as we look at the close of this incredible book that we've spent more than half a year studying, God, we just pray that that would be the thrust of all that we do, that life change is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. So God, as we read, as we consider, as we contemplate, Lord, we just pray that you will break down barriers. You will be the one who teaches, that you will go ahead of us, God, and accomplish things beyond what we could ask or imagine and all for the glory of your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my wife Corinne grew up in a home with a dad who could fix anything. Uh, it was like this guy was spawned by Bob Bela, Tim Taylor, and Mike Maffioli. If they all spawned a creature, her, his, her dad would come out, right? He built the house they lived in, right? That's intimidating enough. He can fix anything that breaks. And on the flip side of that, I grew up with Mike Parks, okay? Whose strategy whenever something broke was this. It was always three-tiered, right? Number one is this. Make a brief attempt to fix it, probably to appease mom. Number two, quickly realize you're way in over your head and get really angry. And then number three, call somebody who knows what they're doing and they'll come over and fix it, okay? Brilliant strategy, especially when he dropped all pretense and went right to number three. Uh, But the result of this is that in our marriage, there's probably no other arena in life in which I've more consistently disappointed Corinne, okay? There's a lot of those areas, but this is the most consistent one, right? She grew up used, like she's just used to living with someone who can make things happen. I can't make things happen, right? So you see the issue there, right? And now she's been super loving and understanding and supportive throughout our entire marriage, but every now and then she reverts. It's like she goes back in time and she forgets just how ignorant I am, right? So she'll go to a friend's house and she'll see their shelves or she'll see somebody's table they build or or a counter space or something she likes and then she'll come home and say, "Maybe, maybe we could build that. Well, because growing up, all she had to do was say to her dad, hey, this is what I saw and he'd just walk out in the shop and build it, right? Well, I require so much more. Right? I don't need to know just what we're doing. I need to know how to do it. And even then, I'm probably batting 500 on pulling it off. Right? But at least I've got a chance. Which, by the way, is why I hate Pinterest. Okay? Did you know Pinterest has, has announced their new logo or their new slogan? It's Pinterest, where you can kill all your husband's Saturdays. Right? That's what they're actually going for. Because until that stupid website came along, my ignorance got me out of so many projects. Okay? Now, all she has to do is just log on Pinterest, and there's this printed list of instructions for me, and I'm stubborn enough that I'm going to try to attempt it, and again, I bat 500, right? But it's important, you see, when you're setting out to accomplish a goal, to know not just what you're trying to do, but how to do it, right? Now, the book of Acts, if you were with us seven months ago, the book of Acts starts with Jesus standing around a small group of his disciples, and he gives them two instructions right at the start of the book of Acts. Number one, you go wait in Jerusalem. And just wait there until you receive the gift my father promised. And number two, when that gift comes, here's what's going to happen. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. 
And then you're going to go and you're going to be my witnesses in, Ju- in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now don't downplay this. Okay, this is basically what went down at the start of Acts, just to remind you where we came from. For three years, these men had followed Jesus everywhere, and he had done almost everything. Jesus had done the teaching. He had performed all the miracles. He went to the cross and rose from the dead. Jesus is the one who endured the persecution and handled the crowds and answered the skeptics' questions and gave hope to the hurting. They had a front row seat to his mastery, but Jesus had done everything. Right? And so then he gathers them at the start of Acts, and he says... Go wait in Jerusalem, and then when it's time, here's all I want you to do. This is it. Just go change the entire world. Oh, and right after this, he leaves them. Immediately. Right? It's time to go back to the Father. And one of the first scenes we see of these guys in Acts is they're staring into the sky after Jesus' ascension, just frozen, not moving. Like maybe if they looked long enough, he'll come back and help them. And some angels show up and say, hey, what what are you guys doing? He told you what you're supposed to do. And for the rest of the book of Acts, those men who we first find paralyzed by their fear and the enormity of a task that was just handed to them, go and do just what's asked of them. For 28 chapters, we've read and studied and seen as they fulfilled their mission. Right? We've seen as they've stood before counselors and rulers and kings and declared the truth of Jesus. We've seen Christianity spread, yes, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Historians estimate by Acts 28, there are over 100 churches. Now, don't think of that. There's more than 100 churches in Terre Haute today, okay? But this was one church, poor city. So there are over 100 cities that had already had churches planted, and there are already Christians in Jerusalem, Judea, Asia Minor, Africa, Greece, Arabia, Syria, Rome, and many more. And these churches weren't small, little, tiny churches. They were healthy, robust, growing churches. And they continued to contribute to the spread of Christianity after these disciples died, leading to more than 300 million Christians in the Roman Empire by the time Constantine takes over. So from those 11 men, right, who, who were standing there frozen and paralyzed, given the mission, those 11 men, given the mission of changing the world by Jesus, come us in this room today. And those in rooms all over our world, celebrating and worshiping Jesus and what he's done in our lives. And through all throughout Acts, we've seen every week what they did. And so to close out this book, I want to ask a simple question. How did they do it? Right? Because, and here's why we need to ask that question. The call on our lives, the call on this church is the exact same as the call on their lives. That we are to be Jesus' witnesses in Terre Haute and in the Wabash Valley and in the state of Indiana and to the ends of the earth. Our mission is no different than theirs. Our calling is no different than their calling. Our marching orders are the exact same. So how did they do it? Well, it's two very simple things, but two very important things. Right. Number one is this. Jesus told them at the start that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He told them, guys, your job is to change the world, but you won't be doing it alone. The Holy Spirit, God himself will come and he'll take up residence inside you. And that's going to grant you incredible power. You have a power and a resource from God himself going before you, doing all this work through you. This is a game changer, right? If we're ever to fulfill our mission that we've been given, we must grasp the truth that it is not us doing the work. And this is actually free, right? Um, One of the most repeated excuses for not sharing our faith is that we're afraid that we won't know the right thing to say. Another common excuse, right, is that I need to clean up my life a little bit so I'm not a hypocrite when I tell someone about Jesus. Or or another one is that, I just don't know if I know enough answers. I don't know if I can answer all their questions enough to share who Jesus is. Can I just clear some things up for you? Number one, you are a hypocrite. I'm a hypocrite. 
Okay, in fact, everyone you meet is a hypocrite. Okay, there's no one on this earth who always lives consistently with their values and belief system. Not a single one. Now, the gospel frees you up not to hide from your hypocrisy, but to embrace it. That Jesus dying on the cross screams to you, you're going to screw up. If you weren't going to, you wouldn't need to die. Right? You won't always do the right thing. You will sin. So our failures cannot become excuses to resist sharing Jesus. Our failures should be bright, blinking lights pointing to Jesus' faithfulness when we are not faithful and his grace when we are sinful. We are not selling ourselves, we're selling him. And he's worth it. Secondly, you'll never feel smart enough. When you go through this life, you're always going to have a modicum of doubt. You're always going to have things that you don't understand. And what this does is give you common ground with those who don't believe like you do. So stop acting like you don't have doubt. Stop trying to hide your ignorance. Embrace them together and start a journey of discovering answers with your unbelieving friends. And thirdly, most importantly, most importantly, please stop thinking that you have anything to do with the success or failure of your witnessing to others about Christ. Because the ramifications of that belief are tragic. First, if we put that weight on us, it often keeps us from fulfilling our life's calling of sharing our faith. And even worse... If we do and it works, we can believe that somehow we saved someone. It was somehow because my life is so put together, because I was clever enough to answer all their questions, or because I just played this perfectly that they now believe. If that's the case, they didn't trust in Jesus, they trusted you. And that's got some bad ramifications for both of you. Since we've been given the power of the Holy Spirit, your job is simply this. Be faithful to what you've been asked to do. The results aren't because of you, and they aren't on you. It's God who removes scales. It's God who opens hearts. It's God who pours out grace. He simply invites us to play. He invites us to be used by him for our good. So the first thing these Christians did is they relied on the power of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who blessed their message. He used their faithfulness, and he brought the victory. And the second thing they did is how I want us to close out Acts. I want us to see the fact that these First Christians were great opportunists. Last week we left Paul in the courtroom as he turned his own defense into an opportunity to try and convince King Agrippa of Judea to become a Christian. At the end of that trial, Paul is sent to Rome because he has appealed to Caesar. And the last two chapters in Acts, Acts 27 and 28, is basically a travel diary. Okay? It's just Luke travels with Paul on this journey to Rome and he just records what happened to them. And Luke tells us they're traveling by boat uh, get, to get closer to Rome. But it was late fall, and the weather on the sea is not cooperating. And so in verse 10 of Acts 27, Paul tries to convince uh, the centurion guarding him, we need to stop here in Crete. We need to, we need to board. We need to, to stop for the winter because this is going to get really bad. Well, the Roman centurion goes and talks to the captain. And he decides he's going to ignore Paul's advice and listen to the captain. And so they continue to sail. Well, just like Paul had warned them, the journey gets really rough. The sea gets rough and rougher. They're, they're now throwing all their cargo overboard. And Luke tells us in Acts 27 that the men on the ship are so consumed with trying not to die that they're fighting the sea so badly they haven't had time to eat in days. Okay, and just to show you that Paul's human, right? He's not Jesus, he's human. He stands up in verse 21 of Acts 27. You know what he says? He says this, men, you should have taken my advice to not sail from Crete, then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. 
Okay, now if you're Luke or someone with Paul at that moment, you're like, Paul, time and place, bro. Okay, time and place, right? These guys haven't eaten in days. They're worried for their lives. This is a terrible time for an I told you so moment. We don't want to do this, okay? But he continues to talk and he he starts to redeem. He tells them that God has revealed to him that they are actually going to be shipwrecked, but not one of them will die. And guess what happens? Sure enough, a few days later, the, the boat runs aground near an island. All who can swim went for the island. The rest found broken parts of the ship when it, when it crashed. And they float on and they all survived. And they make it to shore. And they're freezing and they're wet. And so they build a fire. And in verse 3 of Acts 28, Paul grabs a pile of brushwood. And he throws it on the fire. And a snake jumps out of the fire and bites his hand. Now at this point, don't you just want to quit? I mean, think about it. All this man has done has been faithful to what God has told him to do. And what has happened in response to that? His own people have made it their life mission to kill him. He's been wrongly imprisoned for four years now. He hasn't had freedom for four years because no Roman ruler can figure out what in the world to do with him. Now he's thrown onto this boat. Nobody listens to him. And sure enough, their journey is just as terrible as he told them it would be. Their ship crashes and now he's cold and he's wet and he just wants to warm himself by the fire. And now this snake bites him. Now, I don't know about you, but I'll, I'll confess this to you openly this morning. When I start acting really uh, pathetic and feeling really sorry for myself, the very last thing that happened to me usually isn't that big a deal. It's just the straw that broke the camel's back. It's the latest in a string of events where I see myself as a victim, which, by the way, Jesus takes that right away from me. Do you know that if you're a follower of Christ, you're never allowed to rightly see yourself as a victim again because of what Jesus has done for you in the gospel? Much as I hate that, he takes that right from me. And Paul handles the situation like a boss. He just shakes the snake off. It just goes on. And it says the islanders just couldn't believe what they watched. And he spends the entire winter there. He's ministering to and serving those on the island and those who are on the boat with him. He's taking the chance to, to heal their sick. He's taking the chance to tell them about Jesus. He's using the opportunity that this shipwreck placed in front of him. He doesn't complain. He doesn't whine. He doesn't fret or worry. He just uses this latest opportunity to make much of Jesus. So spring comes and they sail again and Paul and everyone traveling with it actually make it to Rome this time. And he's assigned to house arrest. And if it was anybody else, okay, what I'm about to read to you would be unbelievable. But for Paul, it's par for the course. So look at Acts 28 starting in verse 17. Acts 28, 17 says this, three days later, so this is three days after he got to Rome. He called together the leaders of the Jews. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I've done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. But when the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any charge to bring against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and to talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this this chain. He did what now? Now, in case you haven't been with us through the journey of Acts, or you just need a reminder, let me take you for a quick trip down memory lane. Paul first meets Jesus in Acts chapter 9, while he's on the way to Damascus to destroy Christians. And on that road, he surrenders his life to Jesus. He commits to God's call in his life that now he will be Jesus' witness everywhere. So he starts in Damascus, and he begins to tell the Jews in Damascus about Jesus. And what do they do to him? They try to kill him. From there, he goes to Cyprus. And he shares the good news of Jesus. And some Jews in Cyprus incite a riot and attack Paul and expel him from their city. So he goes to Iconium. 
And he shares the good news of Jesus. And what happens? Stop me if you've heard this before. The Jews try to stone him. So from there, he goes to Lystra, and the Jews actually do stone him. And they think they've killed him, and they leave him for dead outside the city. And miraculously, he survives. So he gets up from that and goes to Thessalonica. And the Jews start a riot, and they chase him out of the city. When he gets to Berea, the Thessalonican Jews follow him there and attack him and try to kill him there. He goes to Corinth, and they abuse him. In Greece, they set up a plot to kill him. In Jerusalem, they, drag, they arrest him, drag him outside the city, and start beating him. And they would have beat him to death if the Roman soldiers didn't intervene. And from that day on, they have traveled to every single one of his trials, demanding he be put to death. So Paul endures all of that. He endures this brutal trip to Rome. He catches his breath for three whole days. And then you know what he thinks? Hey, you know who I'd like to talk to? A group of Jews. Is he insane? Actually, he's not. As you see, Paul was a Jew. And in the book of Romans, he writes about his burden for his people. And in a line that I shudder every single time I read it, he says this in Romans 9. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, the people of Israel. See, Paul's heart broke for people who didn't know Jesus, especially his own people. Trapped by their own traditions and their zeal and their blindness to what God was actually doing. And he wanted nothing more, not even his own salvation, than for his people to come to recognize Jesus as the hope they had been waiting for centuries for. This is why after all the beatings, why after the stonings, why after all the attempts on his life, why after all the imprisonments, whenever he arrived in a city, he would start in the synagogue with the Jews. Because he wanted them to know Jesus more than he wanted to be safe. And this should be compelling to us, right? Admittedly, if you can ask any of them, admittedly, Christians have a hard time sharing their faith because of their fear of being rejected. Okay, so let's collectively this morning, together, let's just take that off the table. Because here's the, here's the spoiler alert, you will get rejected. There's no reason to fear the possibility of it. It will happen whether you guard yourself against it or not. Right? But the potential gain, the stakes for those who we share Christ with, and Jesus himself is worthy of whatever rejection we may face. In addition to that, though we're less frequent to admit it, right, we all think these thoughts. There are people who we write off as someone who just isn't interested. I know them, right? I know their lifestyles. I know the things they chase. I know their beliefs. I I see their social media profiles. I know they just wouldn't be interested in this stuff. You don't know that. You don't know that. You have no idea how God is working in people's lives. Think of Megan's story that we baptized today. You know how she came here? She drove by the building and God told her to come in. Which one of you did that? You didn't do that, right? Think about, think about the next time you think about dismissing someone's chances of giving their life to Christ, I want you to think about Paul inviting the Jews to come see him after all they did. If there was ever a group to write off. Right? Paul had reason to write off the Jews. And look what we're told in verse 23. Acts 28, 23, they arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. From morning till evening, he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. Now, did some of them reject him? Did some of them ignore his complaints? Sure. We're told right there in verse 24, some believed. And listen, for those who believed on that day, 
they are right now currently experiencing an eternal reality of perfection and bliss that Jesus bought for them. And it will never end. So it was totally worth it. Now I want you to see how this book ends. Look at the end of Acts 28 and starting in verse 30. It's how Luke decides to end this entire book. Verse 30 says this. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house, and he welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus. Stuck in house arrest, having to pay for his own home. Awaiting trial, Paul's undeterred. Welcoming everyone who would see him, Luke tells us. He boldly and without hindrance told everyone he could all about God's kingdom and about Jesus. Now Luke wanted his readers to end this book being struck by Paul. Right? He wanted us to have a picture of this man's undying devotion to Christ. There was simply no cost that Paul wouldn't endure for the sake of Jesus because he understood the cost that Jesus had endured for him. There's simply no one that Paul wouldn't share Jesus with because he knew that Jesus' blood is sufficient to cover the sins of a million worlds. And there was no opportunity that he would not cash in because he found everything other than Jesus in this life to be woefully insufficient. And that's the big secret. That's the big secret of Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Stephen and Peter and John and Philip and James. The big secret is they relied on the power of the Holy Spirit. And they took advantage of every opportunity they had to share Jesus with others. And the world was changed. Listen, as we close Acts, let's just, let's just all do ourselves a favor. Let's not make our mission more complicated than it is. We too have received the Holy Spirit. We too have been given the exact same great commission. So what are we to do with it? Pray and ask God to go before us in power. Relying on the Holy Spirit to work through us. And then take advantage of the opportunities that we have to share Jesus. It's that simple. Don't overthink it, right? Throughout the book of Acts, we have this amazing picture of the standard of multiplication that God places on our lives, that whatever God gives me is not meant to end with me, right? Whatever God gives me is meant to go out of me and bless multiple other people. And there's nothing greater. There's nothing greater that God has given me or you than Jesus Christ. There's nothing greater than the hope and the peace and the joy and the fulfillment that we find in him. There's nothing greater than the promise of eternal life that we have in him. There's nothing greater than freedom from sin and all its consequences that we have in him. There's nothing greater than being freed from the burden of inadequacy or purposelessness or lack of direction, which is what Jesus has done for us, right? And if you've found him and, if you've, and he's done all that for you, then your life mission is incredibly clear. You don't have to wonder about it. You are still on this earth to share Jesus with other people who don't know him. This is why he allows you to have breath in your lungs. This is why he gives you another day. It's why he hasn't taken you home yet. Because you won't be able to do this in heaven. Now is your one chance. It's your one opportunity. God is changing the world. He's redeeming his creation. And he's inviting you to play. Will you play? Will you lay down your self-created fears and concerns and enter into a lifetime of adventure and purpose and making Jesus known where you are? Oh, church, to, to shake you from Sunday morning Christianity to a life that if it was cut would bleed nothing but Jesus. To take your focus off of things like music and building spaces and lights and pulpits and, and slights that people have done to you and square it fully on the glory of Jesus. To make you discontented with any way of life that isn't daily looking for opportunities to share 
God's mission of saving this world, to, to get you to simultaneously realize that Jesus and his gospel are bigger than you've ever grasped. And then to get more of those in your life. Shake you from complacency and boredom and chasing fiction and alternate reality when the greatest drama the world has ever seen is unfolding right in front of you. To discover that true life and true joy comes from emptying yourself on behalf of Christ and his gospel. This is our hope. This is our prayer. This is what we plead to God for you. Jesus Christ came so that you may have life and have it to the fullest. That's what he said. And it is most full in him. This is what we are here for. This is our mission. Will you play? Will you make your job more than a paycheck? Will you make your home more than the American dream? Will you make your college more than just a degree? Will you make your neighborhood more than just a place to live? Will you search out for and take advantage of the opportunities that you have in your life to share Jesus with others? Do you notice Acts doesn't really end? I mean, there's no, there's no writer in Scripture more meticulous and detailed than Luke. And Luke, for 28 chapters, has told stories in these exquisite details and unsurpassed accuracy. And he closes with this picture of Paul sharing Christ with all he had, but there's no real resolution. None. The story just kind of just cuts off. And here's why. It's because the story isn't over. Acts doesn't really end because it hasn't ended. Jesus hasn't returned yet. The mission for the church hasn't changed. We, you and I in this room, are to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. We are Acts 29 and Acts 30 and Acts 31 and on and on. This mission is why God created you, why he came for you, why he died for you, why he rose again and pursued you and saved you so that you would know him and make him known. He did that so that for the rest of your life, he could invite you to join him in changing the world. Will you say yes? Now, we're going to take communion here in just a second. But I want to address really quickly those in this room who aren't yet Christians. Who aren't followers of Christ. You might be sitting there listening to all this and thinking, man, what is this, a pyramid scheme? Right, is this, this Amway or something? Or is this church trying to convert me? This guy on stage trying to convert me? Is the person inviting me here today? Are they trying to convert me? Well, I want to answer that question so we can all be on the same page. Yep. That's exactly what we're trying to do. Okay. And we don't see you as a project. We don't see you as a conquest because that would diminish who you are as a child of God. But here's why. We have found Jesus to be better than anything else out there. We have found in Jesus a hope that is unsurpassed. We have found in him a joy that cannot be taken away. We have found in him purpose and grace. We have found in him our reason for living. And in Jesus, our sins have been forgiven. And we are granted, guaranteed eternal life in heaven with him. And we cannot find that anywhere else but him. So, of course, we want that for you. It would be terrible people if we didn't want that for you. This place exists for the sole reason to make much of Jesus and to point everyone who walks in these doors to a closer walk with him. And it starts with surrendering your life to him. We're going to take communion. And in that, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, this, this isn't for you. You don't have to take part in this. But nobody's going to look at you funny. Nobody's going to shake their heads at you. Nobody's going to judge you. We all were where you are now. But I, I invite you just to observe this.
to watch, to think about it. To think about how the bread and the cup represent Jesus' body that was broken and his blood was shed because that body was broken and that blood was shed for you. It was for you. And if you want to see in God's word how today you can give your life to him and start your unforgettable journey of following Jesus, this is why we are here. It's all of the reasons why we're here. So find me, talk to me, talk to the person next to you, talk to whoever invited you. We can't wait to show you that and celebrate with you today. We couldn't be more overt. Today's theme is clear. From the baptism to the ending of Acts to communion, we exist to celebrate the life change that is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. And our love for Jesus compels us to celebrate that and worship him. And our love for you compels us to share that with you. We have to share that with you. Because you can't find it anywhere else. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that everything in the book of Acts is possible because of what your son did on the cross and in what he did in, res- in raising from the dead three days later. God, we thank you that anything good in our lives is possible because of your love. God, any hope we have of finding our purpose, any chance we have of eternal life in heaven, any chance we have of the most fulfilled life here is, is possible because of what you've done for us in Jesus. So, Lord, I pray as we come to the table, and as we remember the cost, yes, God, this is solemn. We're thinking about cost, but it's also joyous. It's also celebratory that while we were sinners, while we had no chance of finding our way to you, you came to us, you died in our place, you rose again, and you bought us back. And that's the greatest news of all. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite our leadership team to come forward, join me at the table. Um, as they do, I want to make a note to you. Um, the way we do this for uh, the newer people here, we, we pass this out and then we read a verse and we take it all together and, and there's going to be music playing and, and it's going to feel like a somber, serious thing. And, and if, you, if that's how you want to observe it, that's fine. But I'm going to also let you know it's okay to smile during communion, Okay. Because what we are celebrating is, what, is that Jesus has bought eternal life for us. What we are celebrating is that the, the Bible says that when we take this meal, we're proclaiming what he's done for us until he comes again. So we're actually celebrating that he will come again, that he'll erase evil forever, right? So, so observe this. Think of the cost, yes, but also, man, enjoy what he's done for you.
For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the lord's death until he returns our worship team is going to lead us in one more song so as they do would you stand and worship with us <laughs> 